The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Good day, and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show, Q&A edition. Hopefully your day is starting out or ending well, depending on what time of the day you're listening to this. And uh, I actually don't have a whole lot to say before I bring Jim in, so um, I'll stop talking. And I'll ex- guess, expect Jim to hop right in since... Uh, Yes, that was. I know. What do you? Is your brain not working? Well, today? normally, normally something comes to mind that I need to mention, and I, I just, I realized as I started talking that uh, there really wasn't anything at the top of my you mind. Nothing. So you got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. So, nothing well to talk about. Right I got nothing. <laughs> so, All yeah. right. Well, welcome, Chris, who has nothing. Hopefully, you'll be able to answer Social Security questions. Yeah. See, then which we'll have a topic. You should, yeah. Which you should, because I actually sent you this question ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't normally do. I like to stump Chris or surprise Chris. You can't stump him. The guy knows a lot. But I thought you're going to have to do some calculating on this one, some ciphering, as Jethro Bodine would say, on uh, Beverly Hillbillies. So did you have to do any ciphering on this one? I did some pre-ciphering so that I could share actual numbers with people, which I think will be helpful as we walk through this particular That's what I thought you wanted. So Chris will be spouting ciphered numbers and I don't want you to think he got that off the top of his head. Um, as for pre-banter, I do want to bring everyone up to date on a few things uh, with yours truly with travels. Hmm. I will actually be in Florida. I don't know if you knew this, Chris. Hmm. Uh, I'm leaving for Florida uh, February 8th. And we'll be down there till February 25th. Those dates are subject to change without notice based on snow. If it's going to snow around the 8th, I will likely fly out before the 8th. And as I'm coming back, if it's supposed to snow in Colorado on the 25th, I will uh, definitely fly out later or fly home a little bit sooner. But if anybody is in the Venice, Colorado area, not Colorado, where am I going? Um, Florida. The Venice, Florida area and would like to perhaps get together, not for dinner, 
Um, dinner is mom. I'm going down there to take care of mom. or not take care of her. She takes care of herself to spend time with mom as my sister, who lives with my mom, goes on a uh, long vacation with her boyfriend. I'm not quite sure where they're going, somewhere in Europe. Hmm. But um, I will be staying with my mom for those two weeks. And uh, dinner is reserved for mom and I. And we don't cook. I mean, I cook when I'm at home, but down there, we don't cook. Uh, we go out to eat every night. So mom and I will be going out to eat for about 14 days in a row. So wow. should be interesting. Hopefully we won't get too sick of going out to a new restaurant every night. But um, it'll be nice. So if anybody is down in the Venice, Florida area, uh, send me an email. Maybe we can get together for a cup of coffee, a beer, iced coffee probably, and um, lunch, something like that. All right. Anyways, just wanted to spout that off. And other places that I'll be traveling to this year, I'll be in San Diego in the fall, somewhere in October for the Ed Slot program. I will be in Indianapolis. And I believe there's one or two Indianapolis listeners who reached out to me already, wanting to know if I was ever going to be in the Indianapolis area. So here you go. Uh, get back a hold of me. I think it's in... It's in... Hmm... When is it? May. It's in May sometime. I think the second week of May. And the following week, it's, it, the timing works perfect. I'll be in Indianapolis for the Ed Slot program. Then that Monday, that'll be through, through uh, Thursday, Friday, and I'll leave Saturday. That Monday, I have to be in Hollywood, Florida, which I didn't even know there was a Hollywood, Florida. Chris, mm. did you know that? There's a Hollywood, Florida? I did know that. Oh, you did? Mm -hmm. What's it near? The water. <laughs> well, everything in Florida is near water. Um, it's on the, the East Coast. It's near Fort Lauderdale. Oh. So anyways, I'll be in Hollywood, Florida, mm -hmm. near Fort Lauderdale uh, in May. I think the third week of May, I'll be there on a Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I signed up for a conference. I have no idea what the hell I signed up for. Huh. But there's a conference. I don't even know the name of it. I just know it's in Hollywood, Florida. And I'll be there. Um, right after the Ed Slot program. Mm -hmm. So, and, and we, then I might be in the summer in July, right around my birthday, back in, um, I think it's called National Harbor, Maryland. I was there a couple of years ago, I think a year or two ago. Um, that's right outside of Washington, D.C. And I'll be there for another Ed Slot event. I'll be going to three events with Ed Slot this year. So anyways, that's some of my upcoming travels in 2024. If anybody lives near any of these cities, let me know. We can get together, grab a coffee or a, a cocktail or a bite to eat and go from there. All right. Anything you want to add? Yeah. Uh, we might be at the Schwab conference in San Francisco in November. So that's way off in the future, but just pointing it's that way, out. way, way off. Oh, that's right. They're going to be paying for you to go, right? Yep. Most likely. Nice. It's not always, it's not a guaranteed invite, but uh, generally they uh, go back and forth kind of eastern part of the United States and then western every other year. And generally when it's in the west, they uh, sponsor uh, me bringing a few students from the university to the conference. So I usually end up uh, there. And we also professionally have a connection with Schwab since that's where we custody our, the assets we manage. So um, you and I, one one or the other of us, may very well be there in San Francisco in November. Now, are you willing to meet with listeners? Or are you just telling people you're going to be in San Francisco? Yeah, I, I would usually have time to to okay. say hi to somebody. I I don't know where 
it's going to be. I'm sure it's in a conference center attached to a hotel somewhere that those details aren't out yet, but it'll be uh, conferences, I think, the 19th through the 21st of November, so that week before Thanksgiving. I will not be there. Oh. I was rather disappointed with the Schwab conference this year, last year. Mm. I thought the classes were they lackluster. They didn't give me mm. any any excitement. They're like, eh, eh. And just, I didn't really care for it much. And Jake was with, Jake Ub was with me, junior. I took one of the juniors. And he liked it. I mean, it's big. It's huge. It's thousands of advisors there and hundreds and hundreds of, of presenters and booths. But I just wasn't overly enthralled with it. So I probably won't be there, but Chris will. So perfect. You can meet with people. Nice. All right. Anyways. Enough of that. Let's jump into this. You already got the social security question, so we'll jump right into that. Okay. Now if I can pull it up. There we go. So there's no sense me doing the hint uh, since you already know oh, the answer. Oh, I, I, I didn't read the hint if you wanted to try me, and I don't have the email up. I just have the numbers I scratched together. So No, he didn't, he didn't give a hint. Oh, okay. Well, then never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He is from, we'll call him George. He's from the state of Texas. Uh He says, Jim and Chris, I appreciate your sharing of your approach to retirement planning using minimum dignity floor and fun number. It is certainly a unique and it is certainly unique and comfortable. My question is specifically for Chris. My wife is about five years younger than me. What would be most optimal for us if we started my wife's own small Social Security benefit at age 62? Her PIA will be $724. PIA, folks, is primary insurance amount. So the PIA at 62 will be 724 he said. And then she will switch to a spousal benefit when she reaches 65 because I will be starting my Social Security at 70. Remember, folks, they got five years age difference. So the wife starts at 62 and then at 65 switches to spousal. His PIA, Chris, is estimated to be 3,376. Should we do that or option two? We both start when I am 70 and my wife claims spousal at 65. You've talked of spousal offset, but I am not sure how it is calculated. By claiming her benefit at 62, how much of her spousal offset will reduce when she switches to my spousal benefit at her age 65? Most web calculators do not answer this question. Appreciate your insights, and importantly, if you can shed light on how it is calculated, that would teach us all how to fish. Thanks, and always ready for your next podcast. George and Georgette, we will call them. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, this uh, I, I appreciate that he shared numbers because it's going to allow me to walk people through exactly the mechanics of how this works with this type of a scenario, which is a fairly common scenario, actually. And first I'll say, he he started asking what would be most optimal. That's something that I cannot 
identify directly for them because there's variables, unknown variables, that would impact the best approach. And the key variable is how much, how long each of them are going to live. Um, certainly, if lifespan ends up shorter than maybe expected or average, uh, one approach would be better than if you have longevity, particularly if both of you live a very long time. There'd be a, another uh, uh, direction that would turn out to be optimal. So uh, identifying the optimal solution isn't really that great. What I usually guide people to do is use Social Security as a tool to solve whatever problem concerns you the most, or at least maybe not solve the problem, but contribute to the solution of the problem that concerns you most, we generally tend to favor solutions where the Social Security is helping us with one particular risk in retirement, that being longevity risk. So we tend to look at scenarios where the what if we live a really long time, what's the best way for us to harvest Social Security? It's just our approach. You could certainly value and look at Social Security as, as a tool to solve something else. But uh, there isn't, uh, the point is, there's not just one optimal approach. Uh, the day I know that I, what your optimal approach was is the day you pass away, then I can tell you how you should have done uh, your Social Security claiming. But obviously, that's not particularly helpful. So in their case, uh, the husband's got a, uh, a much larger Social Security benefit. Uh, PIA, by the way, as Jim mentioned, primary insurance amount. That is the amount that you are paid as a be benefit, excuse me. If you were to claim at your full retirement age, now they don't share their full retirement ages here, uh, their current ages. They tell us they're you know a five-year difference. So I'm going to make an assumption here because most people now are kind of falling into this uh, age 67 as their full retirement age. Anybody born 1960 or after has a full retirement age of uh, 67. So somebody born in 1960 is 63. This I'm sorry, 64 turning 64 this year as we're recording this. And so we're about we're kind of on the verge of people mostly being, you know, when they're thinking about Social Security, mostly being um, 67 as their full retirement age. So I, I I'm just going to use that. I don't know um, for sure for, for them what the case is. Um, my guess is that's true because they wouldn't be talking about claiming at her age 62 um, if uh, she had already turned 62. You can't, you know, turn back the clock, if you will. So with that in mind, uh, the PIA that he has listed at 3376, we can assume just for arguments for calculation uh, ease here that he could receive that at 67. Her benefit of 724 is available at her age 67. So then we get into his kind of hypotheticals. What if she claims at 62? Well, that's five years before her full retirement age. And the general rule, uh, well, not general rule, the rule for your own benefit is that if you claim earlier than that, they're going to reduce your benefit 25% prorated over the first three years you're claiming early and then five years per year after that. So if you, um, I'm sorry, 20, not 25, I, I misspoke, 20% over a three-year prorated period, and then 5% each year after that. That's how we get to that 30% reduction for someone claiming at 62 rather than 67. Um, 
That's just how it works. The, the, the penalty, if you will, is different for the first three years of early claiming. And then, uh, after that, it's a separate calculation per year. So with that in mind, if she were to claim at 62, her 724 is reduced by 30% to $507. So that's her benefit. But she obviously, once he claims, is going to unlock a spousal benefit. And we know that because half of his benefit is bigger than her benefit. Half of his 3376 PIA is 1688. And that's much bigger than the 724 for her. So the way they deal with that is if uh, he's claiming and she claims, uh, let's pretend they're both at full retirement age. Um, when this happens, or at least she is, that's the critical part here, she would get her 724, and then she would get what's called a spousal offset of $964 to bump her up to the total of 1688. That's how she's going to get to half of his PIA. Now that turns out to be the most she could collect as a spousal benefit. So that's her max. There's nothing she can do to increase it, but there is something she can do to decrease it. And that is claim either her own benefit or the spousal benefit or both earlier than her full retirement age. So let's walk through her scenario or the, his first scenario where she claims at 62 there, she would collect then 507 per month up until he turned on access to her spousal by claiming he's contemplating age 70, which puts her at 65. And the kicker here though, is at 65, she hasn't yet reached her full retirement age. So her spousal offset that 964 I mentioned before, that gets reduced, but not reduced five years because she didn't claim that until 65. So there's kind of two separate reductions going on here. There's the 30% reduction to her piece, and then there's going to be a uh, separate reduction just over two years, uh, about 12.5%. Actually, actually, no, a little bit bigger than that. The 964 is going to become more like 803 because she's going to experience a reduction. And the even more confusing part is the reduction factor for spousal benefits is different than that for your own benefit. Your own benefit, as I mentioned, when you claim it early is reduced 20% prorated over the first three years of early claiming. The spousal benefit is 25% over that same period. So what we would look at, if she claims at 65 instead of 67, she's experiencing two out of those three years of reduction. So her reduction to that spousal offset is going to be about 16.67%. Almost 17% is what that, that spousal offset. So all this while she's collecting her 507 and then she gets her 803 for a total of $1,310 a month. That was what she would get forever. We're leaving, of course, out of this conversation, cost of living adjustments. Those are going to kind of all go on top of this, but just to keep things simple, just leave it in today's terms. The $1,310 a month then becomes the most she'll ever receive. She'll never get to the $1,688 that I mentioned was her potential. Because the only way she gets 1688 is if she claims both benefits at full retirement age or after. Now, 
Some people think, well, I'm not claiming my spousal. I could wait. I'm only claiming my own. That's true. That's why they apply a reduction factor separate to both of these, which allows people the flexibility and, and I guess the fairness in the calculation to collect their own for a while, even though it's reduced, and then later turn on the spousal. Now, she could, when he, when he claims his uh, retirement at age 70, the, um, since she's already claiming, they now are generally going to automatically turn on hers. So um, if she hadn't claimed yet, when he claimed at 70, she could intentionally not file at all until 67 in order to get the most money available. Why would they want to consider this? If they're concerned about generating the most income while they're both alive, getting her to wait to claim to full retirement age is going to help accomplish that. But when one of them passes away, her benefit's going to disappear. So it's not that her waiting helps both of them. It helps the couple only. But if that's a priority to them in the long haul, and they're worried about joint longevity, waiting to 67 is the way to do it. Not claim either one early, because if she claims her own earlier than that, there's no way they're ever going to get back to the 1688. It's always going to be permanently reduced. Even if she waits to claim the spousal till later on, there's still a certain reduction happening to each component of the spousal benefit. And the reason why there's these two separate components, just in a, you know quickly to finish up here, it's that when you file for benefits, you are deemed to be filing for your own benefit first. And then they will top you up with a spousal benefit. It's just how they choose to account for it and do the calculations. They really look at it as two separate parts. It isn't two separate pools of money. It's coming from the same source. But there's two separate independent calculations, if you will, that are available to you. So there is this case where you you spend some period of time with just your own benefit and then you bolt on the spousal. But it, when they when you do that, it doesn't undo the early claiming of your own. That's permanent harm that you're going to experience. Where that permanent harm doesn't last is a survivor benefit, just to mention that real quickly. Survivor benefits are a separate pool, and the fact that you claimed your own early before full retirement age will not undermine you being able to collect all of your uh, of an unreduced survivor benefit later as long as you collect that survivor benefit after your full retirement age. So some people are worried about that too. Well, if she claims at 62 and then he passes away later, will she have harmed her survivor benefit? No, as long as she doesn't switch to that survivor benefit until at least her full retirement age, that survivor benefit, which is 100% of what he was collecting or could have collected if he hadn't yet started, uh, is available to her even though she might have claimed her own or her spousal benefit early. Survivor, it's kind of like the reset button. They look at that fresh again with brand new dates and brand new claiming ages. So this, I know for people, it's a little convoluted, and this question is going to come up repeatedly because it is confusing the way these, these components tend to come together. But uh, you know, hopefully walking you through uh, this um, you know, gave you some ideas. If uh, the one scenario I think they were interested in, if they, if she waits to claim to 65 when he turns 70, 
The benefit there, with when we apply the independent reduction factors for two years to her own and to the spousal offset, gives her a total amount of fourteen thirty per month. Better than the thirteen ten if she claimed at sixty two and then added the spousal later, but still not quite the sixteen eighty eight she could get by not claiming either until sixty seven. So. Hopefully that helped. There's a lot of figures out there, still probably very confusing, but hopefully that uh, helped at least in those one particular instance kind of weigh the weigh the options. Excellent. I think you did a very good job. Well, See you. why I gave you the numbers ahead of time? Yes, that would have been pretty much impossible to do <laughs> on the fly. <laughs> All righty. We have a listener who gave us a hint. This is going to be a uh, Irma question. I had no idea the answer to this one. I didn't even know who this guy was. But he said he lives in the state where Thomas J. Watson founded the IBM Corporation and where its headquarters are still located. Hmm. Everybody knows Microsoft is from Washington, but I didn't know IBM was from this particular state. I would guess California, but that seems too obvious. I would have assumed California, too. It's on the totally opposite side of the country. Mm. Along the coast. (laughs) Um, South Carolina. Nope. New York. Oh. Nice. I I, I I didn't know know that. that. I did not know that. All right. But George does give us a Irma question. I retired in 2022 and did a large Roth conversion to take our joint income to the very top of the 24% bracket. As a result, my wife and I both received a letter from Social Security indicating our Medicare Part D premiums for 2023 would be very large due to Irma. I got a little confused on this part of the question, Chris, because I thought there was a two-year look back. Yeah, I I was going to point that out. I wasn't going to interrupt you, but there's a little disconnect in how it works right there because the 2023 IRMA is going to be based on 2021 modified adjusted gross income. So what they did in 22 is not affecting it. What they did in 22 is potentially going to affect 2024's premiums via Irma. So they must have had high earnings before retirement in 2021 to create 2023 Irma effects. So that's uh, just to be clear there that uh, the way they typed it is, is not quite how it works. That's what I thought. Okay. We sent in form SSA 44, what I like to call folks the get out of jail free card. It's just the form that you're going to use to say, Hey, this was an anomaly. Uh, I'm retired now or whatever the the exemption you're claiming is, and please don't charge me my IRMA. Mm -hmm. So we sent in form SSA 44 based on my retirement as a qualifying event, which was approved. Mm -hmm. My question is, if our income exceeds the lowest IRMA tier this year, and this email came in in 2024, Chris. So my question is, If our income exceeds the lowest IRMA level tier for this year, will the IRS just require us to pay the premiums we should have paid for that lowest tier? Or 
will they revert back to the letter they sent us and ask us to pay the premium for the higher tier based on our 2022 income? I love the show and have learned so much for your podcast. Do you want me to repeat that ending or did you get it? No, it is I think little- with your emphasis on when they're talking this year um, and talking about 2024, um, Depends on how they filled out the SSA 44. (laughs) Essentially, they are still within that window where 2024 is generally uh, based on 2022 modified adjusted gross income, which is the year that he said he retired. Now, if he worked into 2022 and, and, and retired, then clearly 2023's and 2024's income is much, much lower generally because of retirement. And so they're going to look first at 2022. But if you if you look at the SSA 44, it allows you to tell them about a couple years worth of anticipated income that have you know happened since the life changing event. In this case, his retirement, which they technically call a reduction or stoppage of work instead. Um, so there's nothing magical about 2022 uh, versus, you know, the 2022, 2024 relationship, that two year delay. They should, if it doesn't automatically happen, um, fill out SSA 44 again and tell them, see, I, my life changing event from 2022 is still in a play here. And you shouldn't be looking at my 2022 adjusted gross income for this calculation, please use my 2024 estimated income. And, and if, if it's below the first tier, you should get out of Irma completely. Um, what I thought they were kind of asking until you, you know, clarify they were asking about 2024 is that they were getting relief. They got granted relief via the SSA 44 for 2023's premiums, but then their income turned out to be, you know, they were worried it was going to kick them up into that first bracket. Or do they just kind of lose out and then it goes way back up, you know, deep into the brackets? Or do they just penalize you, you know, in the bracket you were really in, even though you claimed you were going to be outside the brackets completely? And it's the, it's the latter. It's if you, you know, ask for relief, Tell them you're going to be below the threshold, which for married filing joint, it's a couple hundred thousand dollars of modified adjusted gross income. Let's say you estimated that's what it was going to be, but then the year progresses and something happens and your income ends up being above it. They'll just recalculate it and say, well, you told us you wouldn't be in a bracket at all, but it turns out you're in the first bracket. So we're going to charge you the first bracket. They won't throw up their arms and say, well, since you were wrong, we're going to go back to the fourth bracket that you were in because of your old work history. Uh, they don't reset it like that. They just kind of adjust it on the fly. So they, they'll trust you up front. You'll, you'll swear to them. This is what your income is expected to be. Then they will get your tax return for the year and adjust it as, uh, required by that. But I think, um, if they filled out the SSA 44 correctly, they likely got protection for both 23 and 24. Um, but if they only gave him information to ask for a reduction for 2023 and they didn't mention 2024, they're probably going to have to file the SSA 44 a second time 
and claim the same life-changing event, but then describe, well, here in 2024, here's my income, and it's you know maybe even lower than it was in 2023. So uh, please use that instead. So you should know by now because they'll be telling you, um, you know, if if they sent us to this in 2024, they've already gotten their Medicare estimated costs, their their statement that tells them your Medicare premiums in 2024 shall be fill in the blank, whatever it is. So I'm surprised they didn't mention that, that they've, you know, on the letter they were charging us or they weren't charging us or what have you. So so I'm reading between the lines, I'm assuming they got that letter and they're not being penalized. So the SSA 44 was filled out properly, giving them forgiveness for 2024 as well. Not forgiveness, or but, but uh, the appeal to use more recent information. And then they're worried about they're going to leak up by accident into the first bracket. Uh, what's going to happen? And it'll happen like I described. They'll they'll let you know at the end of 2024, uh, after they get all the tax information there in 2025, they'll figure out your AGI, your modified adjusted gross income technically. And if you, uh, for 2024, technically were up in a, one of the Irma tiers, you're going to get a bill. You're going to get notified that uh, you underpaid your premiums, and then they're going to... Uh, give you some options to get that adjusted properly. All right, let's get into regular email questions. All right, first one. It is going to be the, I guess technically we'll say this is the new question of the week. And then the annuity question, because I like to do an annuity question, is also from this week. What have we been talking about lately, Chris? That would make me do the question as the new question of the week. I suspect it's going to be the new Secure Act rules surrounding RMDs yes. and annuitized annuities. Section 204, and, yeah. and this is it. Yeah. We, we are going to let laying dogs sleep here. We're, we're not going to get any uh, – this, this is it. After I, I do this, we're, we're done. And people still don't get it. Until there's new news. You know, the IRS is going to come out with more information about some things. Um, But until that time, it's kind of, we don't need to talk about it anymore because we're just saying the same thing over and over and over again. Exactly. That's why I said we're going to let the laying dog sleep and just move on. Okay. But for today, we're going to get to this question. So as the new question of the week, this gentleman wrote a very long email. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I'm going to read highlights of it. And then trying to get people set straight on this. I did reach out to Ed Slot Group finally on this, and I've got some information to share. And I also got a hold of Rita. A lot of people don't know who Rita is. The re- oh, Gosh, now I have to try to remember Rita. The Retirement Income Trust Association. Retirement Industry Trust Association. It is a group of banks and trust companies. Most trust companies are owned by banks, folks. Many of you know that. So they have their own little organizations nicknamed RITA. They came out with a very, very good article for their members to take into account on Section 204. So I'll post the links. This is going to be our first attempt. Somebody suggested we post the links to the articles we, we reference in something called the show notes. Um, Jacob said he can do that. So we will see. I will send him these links 
and hopefully he will have the links. But I will also mention the articles in case I screw up or J- Jacob screws up and um, they're, they're not in the show notes for some reason. But let's get to this question. And hopefully, I figure if two people wrote, there's got to be other people who are still confused on this, and I don't understand why. He says, I love your show, and now listen to it every week while walking. Keep up the length, lengthy content as I walk 90 minutes a day. and need a consistent feed of podcasts <laughs> to keep me going. So that's it, Chris. We have to go to an hour and a half, hour and a half format now. Please. I'm writing about your EDU show pertaining to Secure Act 2, Section 204. Mm-hmm and the aggregation of RMDs. While I agree with you that the IRS rule clarification is required due to how the law was worded, I wonder if you're overthinking this. Me? Overthink something, Chris? Do I ever overthink things? Mm, Sometimes. (laughs) I believe, this is the gentleman writing now, I believe the spirit and intent of the law is to address the issues you outlined. Regarding the fact that prior to Secure 2, if you had an annuity inside an IRA and it was annuitized, again, that's the verb, folks. You got income, no money anymore. No account balance, just income. And you are receiving payments. Those payments would only satisfy the RMD for that annuitized annuity. So he agrees. I agree. That paragraph he wrote there is correct. Then he goes, um, I believe, though, that the spirit and intent of the law, he repeated this, I'm not repeating those, his words repeating, was to allow people to take this annuitized annuity RMD payment into account and use it as the, and he capitalized, Chris, the entire word the, the primary required minimum distribution payment for all your IRAs. And it doesn't work that way. They're not going to let you take what is essentially an annuitized annuity inside an IRA. They're not going to let you take that payment and use it as, quote, unquote, the, all caps, the primary RMD payment for all your IRAs. They're not doing that. So he continues. If, and he gives an example, Chris, if the lump sum amount from your other IRAs has an RMD, let's give it an example, folks. If, for example, the lump sum amounts from all your other IRAs, not your annuitized IRA, all your other IRAs has an RMD of X, and the payment from your annuitized IRA is why if that y was larger than your x you would be satisfying the rmd requirements for that year simply by having that annuitized ira that's wishful thinking that's wishful thinking you are totally wrong on this listener absolutely positively totally wrong but he continues If, however, X was greater than Y, you would satisfy the requirement by subtracting Y from X and then take an additional RMD for that amount. 
So he's saying if your annuitized annuity doesn't have enough to satisfy your RMDs from all your other IRAs, you just have to simply subtract those two and take the difference. Again, you are not correct. Yeah, I think where maybe I can clarify his logic where he'll see where he's going wrong. He's essentially saying you can use the RMD from the annuitized annuity to pay the RMD from this other account that he's calling, I think, X. Well, if that's what you're doing, what's paying the RMD from the annuity? If you're stealing that to pay the other RMDs from your other non-annuitized accounts, are you claiming, essentially that's what he's doing, there is now no longer an RMD requirement on an IRA, if, it's, if it happens to be annuitized, there's just no RMD. That's what he's saying in his argument, which I think stated like that. You can see the weakness in this because that's clearly not happening. They didn't say, oh, annuitize this and you no longer have an RMD from this account because it is annuitized. That is not in any way, shape or form how Congress wrote it, nor how it's applied, nor how it's ever been, nor probably will ever be. Okay, so he continues. Stop thinking so deeply about the quote-unquote value of an annuitized annuity. It has no value from a lump sum perspective. Am I right? You are correct. From a lump sum perspective, listener, it doesn't have a value in that you can call up the insurance company because I told you this is a verb. This is an action. It's not a noun annuity. It's a verb annuity. You have given the insurance company your money. You can't call them up and say, I want my money back because it's been annuitized. Now, if there's an insurance agent listening, I know there's a couple of SPIA companies out there that do offer very, very, very limited access to your remaining payments. But if you did take any of those remaining payments as a lump sum, your payments will also drop. It's not what we're talking about here. For the most part, when you annuitize with a single premium immediate annuity, he's right. There is no lump sum. You can't call them up and get money out. But that doesn't mean you aren't supposed to figure out what the value of that annuity is as a lump sum. You have to. But he continues. And that's the key word you use there, the value. It Just because it isn't a lump sum accessible doesn't mean that annuity doesn't have an equivalent value. And that's what we're getting at here. As he continues, I'll continue with that sentence. I'll read it over again. Stop thinking so deeply about, quote unquote, the value of an annuitized annuity. It has no value from a lump sum perspective. Am I right? It now represents simply a required minimum distribution payment for you to compare with your other RMD payments you may be required to take. And then take the difference between those payments if there is one. It does not work that way, listener. You don't have to believe me if you don't want to, and you can try doing it that way if you'd like, but it doesn't work that way. Then he ends with, I hope this makes sense. Sometimes you go deep into the wrong weeds, I think, but it's still a good conversation. I would be curious to see what the eventual IRS rules have to say. No, I don't think I am going into the wrong weeds. So what I did was this. First, I got a hold of the Ed Slot group and I said, hey, guys, I'm trying to get this explained. Can you please first confirm that I'm correct? And do you have anything out there that I can tell people about? So there is 
an article that they came out with on the slot report. I will link to this. It's a very short article. It came out in August. Ed did not write it. Ed doesn't write the slot report. One of his minions does. Uh, this particular minion is Ian. Ian is a uh, ERISA attorney who's been working with Ed for several years. Anyways, I'll just give you the name. Just Google slot report. New law may lower RMDs when annuity is annuitized, but further IRS guidance needed. If you just Google that or any variation of that, it'll pop up if it's not in the show notes. I hope to have that link in the show notes. Read that article. I'll just read the last paragraph. So what's the problem with all this? The problem is you need a valuation of the annuity to use the new RMD rule. And Secure Act 2 does not say how to obtain that valuation. The insurance company is supposed to report to you the fair market value of your annuity annually on Form 5498. But once an annuity is annuitized, that doesn't always happen. I'm telling you, it doesn't happen at all. You don't have to. It's been annuitized. If it does happen, the reported value may not be one you could even rely on. So until we get IRS guidance on what constitutes the proper valuation of an annuitized annuity, it may be challenging you, uh, challenging for you to take advantage of this new RMD rule. It's right there, folks. All of you who are saying, Ed said this, Ed said that, Ed said nothing of that. It was a poorly written article that had um, the numbers were even wrong in the article. It was a shame that Financial Advisor magazine put that out there. It was just so poorly worded and the number was even wrong in it. There it is right from the Ed Slot group. You need the valuation. You have to value for the listener who wrote with your X and Y. Y was your annuitized annuity, if you remember the letter Y was your annuitized annuity. You can't use the full value of Y. You can't use that full distribution. You have to first determine what would have been the value of that annuity if it was never annuitized in the first place. What would its current value be? And the only way you can do that is to contact the insurance company or do it on your own, as we talked about on last week's EDU. Once you know that dollar amount value, you can determine what the RMD for that annuitized annuity would have been. And that's the step you're missing, listener who emailed me this. You have to first determine the value of that annuity. Figure out what the RMD would have been from that annuity by going to the uniform lifetime table, finding your age, getting the divisor, divise it into that value, that is the RMD for that annuitized annuity. Then you subtract that from Y. If that number is positive, and it will be because the distributions are quite large from annuities, it's only that difference that can carry over to reduce your X. You're forgetting that crucial element. And finally... Go to Rita, and I will try to have, this is a much more in-depth article, 
All you um, engineer types, you're going to like this article. So RITA is, again, the Retirement Industry Trust Association. I will try to have this link, but if it's not available, you just Google RITA, RITA, and put Secure 2 Offers, Powerful Retirement Income Opportunity, or just a couple of words. You don't even have to put that whole sentence. Just put RITA, Secure 2, Powerful Planning Opportunity. I bet you it would pop up. But I'll try to have the link to it. That came out in August as well. Read this article. Read the footnotes. Read everything. But one thing that I want to make mention is they um, treat it right in here. And I'm trying to find uh, where it is. I had it, but I moved it, Chris. Um, Well, I can't see it, folks. I apologize. But somewhere in here, they point out the problem. And the problem is getting the value of the annuity. And they walk you through examples, not examples of how to figure out the value of the annuity, but examples of, of why you need to first figure out the value of the annuity. And they walk you right through it. And in the footnotes, they give you a few ideas of ways you might want to go about trying to value an annuity, but they don't give you a calculation. They just tell you and point out to you in all their examples, you need to do this. Now, this is an organization that writes for banks and trust companies. So I've got Ed Slot's group and now Rita trying to set everybody straight on this. Chris and I are not going down the wrong weeds. We know what we're talking about on this. Now, the IRS could come out because they haven't given guidance. And maybe the gentleman who who likes to walk to us, uh, who sent me this email this week, maybe they come out with his point and says, you know what? We're going to let you use the whole thing. Just take whatever you annuitize. We're really going to try to encourage you to annuitize. We believe in it. Take the entire balance and reduce all your other RMDs by that, we don't care. But I don't think they're going to do that because they want you to take out as much RMD as possible. Congress is trying to be a little bit nice by telling them, hey, you can consider an annuitized IRA. You never could in the past. But then they're going to still want you to do it this way. And Rita thinks so, and Ed Slot thinks so, and I think so. What do you think, Chris? I think it's overly confusing, not because of the way we described it, but because of the way it's been historically versus now what they're transitioning to, but with little guidance as to how to actually pull it off. So once the final guidance comes out, which I'm betting will be, you have to get the number from your insurance company and the insurance companies will come up with a method of of determining it, which will give you the guidance that you need. I suspect that's uh, where this is headed, but uh, we'll know. And then it'll be hopefully it'll be settled in the not too distant future. Because until then, it'll still be a lot of uh, uh, unnecessary confusion. I think if this was more proactively well thought out, then they would have had this designed so you could actually follow the rules uh, up front. Right now, it's way too vague. And I found what I wanted from Rita. So Rita wrote this, folks, as discussed and illustrated in our example. So read the article. They give you good examples. 
The use of the new annuitization rule requires an annual determination of the value of the annuitized contract. The statute does not elaborate on this valuation method. RMD rules require the fair market value of all assets be included in the numerator of your RMD calculation. Thus, the value of an annuitized benefit for purposes of this calculation should also reflect the fair market value of that benefit. There may be several ways to approach this. You may obtain an actuarial present value calculation, and we feel that should suffice. So I don't know what else to tell you, folks. It's right there. That's what Rita is telling their members. So done. That sleeping dog's going to lay, and we're going to move on. So we got this other question also kind of relating to this, but has to do more with an annuity. And I think this gentleman was given some bad advice. So he said, I listened to your e- oh, wait a minute, his hint. He lives in the state which was the second U.S. capital. This is going back to history, Chris. The second? The second. Was it Pennsylvania? And yes. Then... I didn't think you'd get it because you're not a history fan. I'm a history fan. I'm not. I don't read as much about it as you do. I'm not that fascinated by it. but Well, how about this one? Do you, well, um, we don't have one, but I, th- this one is good. He, he gives an example. He says, the first capital under the Constitution was actually New York. But in 1790, it was moved to Philly. Philadelphia, yeah. Then on May 14th, 1880, excuse me, 1880, 1800, the nation's capital was moved to Washington, D.C., Beautiful. Okay, so he said, and, and this this one, there's a lot going on here, folks. I can teach you guys a little bit about something, but I think this guy got some bad advice. Keep You listen to this. You you um, chime in. He said, I listened to EDU podcast today and came up with the following question, which you may be able to address on a Q&A show. You spent a good bit of time on talking about an annuitized annuity or the verb under Section 2 of Section excuse me, Secure 2, Section 204, to determine the account value for calculating your RMD. You hinted that there is a formula for non-annuitized annuities, the noun, but did not allude, but did not describe except saying the insurance company needs to provide the account value for the annuity to be used. Mm -hmm. Elucidate? Is that the word I was trying to pronounce? Mm, Maybe, yeah. E-L-U-C-I-D-A-T-E? Yeah. Lucid? Oh, okay. That's a new word. My situation, if you wish. I bought a fixed income annuity with an income rider three years ago with $250,000. I was 65 years old. With a plan that the guaranteed income would give a payout of 6%. I'm trying to not get too deep into this. So he says, to provide some real numbers, the $250,000 annuity account is guaranteed to pay me $30,000 a year in 10 years when I'm 75. 
So he has an annuity, folks, that's a noun, not a verb. I skipped a lot of what he wrote because I don't want to go deep into the weeds. He has a noun annuity inside an IRA. He put $250,000 in it when he was 65. He's guaranteed in 10 years to receive $30,000 a year for the rest of his life. He wrote many things in here on why he doesn't feel that 30000 will be higher. It could be higher. This is the minimum he's, about to, he's guaranteed to get. But from his calculations, it's not going to be higher. And he's probably right because of the fees associated with this annuity and the cap rates and everything like that. So let's just assume he's saying, I'm going to get $30,000 a year beginning at age 75. What makes this annuity unique It's not a verb. It stays a noun. This is called a withdrawal benefit. So the insurance company told him at 65 when he bought this, if you keep this for 10 years, we guarantee you no less than $30,000 a year. There is a possibility he can get more. I agree with him. He probably isn't. He's probably going to be stuck at 30. So he knows he's going to get $30,000 a year beginning in 10 years or eight more years from now, I think, when he is 75. But also what the insurance company does at first, Chris, is what? Gives you back your own money at first. All they're doing. So Chris is 100% correct. He put in $250,000. When we do the um, National Annuity Awareness Month in June, I'll get deeper into these annuities. He put in 250000 He will have some account balance in there. I'm not quite sure how much, but let's just say by time he retires, uh, I think he may even give an estimate in his mind of how much it is. No, he keeps it at 250. He's actually going so far as to saying he doesn't think he's going to get much growth in it. You'll get some growth, listener. I understand your math here. You want to keep it at 250, but I bet you you're going to get closer to 300, somewhere around there. All's what they're going to do is give him 30,000 a year from his own account balance. And he walks you through that listener. So he continues to provide some real numbers. The $250,000 annuity is guaranteed to pay 30,000 a year in 10 years. That will be about 12% of my assumed account value. My RMD will be about 4%. It's actually going to be about 3.8, but 4 is close. The RMD, my RMD would be about 4%. So on 250,000, that'll be about $10,000, which means $20,000 of extra annuity guaranteed payout can be used to cover my RMDs from another IRA I will have estimated to be worth about $500,000. In his particular case, Chris, he's correct because it is not a verb. It stays a noun, this annuity. He has access to his $250,000. I think he'll have a little bit more than two fifty dollars in there, but using his numbers. So when he receives 30,000, he's saying, "Hey, if it is 250, my RMD is going to be about 10, 10 grand on right. this IRA. Mm-hmm. 
I'm going to have $20,000 left over. I get half a million in another IRA that's not inside an annuity. It's just another IRA. I can use that 20000 Absolutely. And you always could before secure. Correct, yeah. Chris? Yeah, it's just like he's taking out. He has. It's like he has an account with 250 in it, and he needed to take out 10, but he chooses to take out 30. That other 20 can be used to offset RMDs he would have had to been required to take from other accounts. That's the scenario. Very, very straightforward. Exactly. And he walks through that, and he makes a good point. Each year the account balance in his annuity will be dropping. He's taking about 12% a year out. I guarantee you the fee for this annuity, even though it's a fixed annuity and won't have any overt fee, it has what is called a rider fee to give him that lifetime income benefit. That's going to be at least another three 75 basis points or three quarters of 1% up to one and a quarter percent. They usually fall somewhere around there. Let's just say it's 1% for him. He's taking out 12. The fee is another one. That's 13% a year coming out. So his RMD for that annuity is always going to be dropping. Now, you're supposed to, listener, make sure you do this. Do not use the account balance. You have to use the interpolated annuity value from the insurance company. Just make sure every year you get a hold of the insurance company and you ask them for RMD purposes, what is my RMD, excuse me, what is my December 31st value for RMD purposes, or better yet, what is my assumed RMD for this annuity? I've seen anecdotally in the office when we've done this. Some insurance companies, they come right back, Chris, with what the account balance is. It's like they've done no calculation. They just say, yeah, the account balance. Others actually have done a calculation, and the value has been higher than the account balance. Not significantly, but I have seen some that come back with a higher balance. The IRS, as we said on last week's show, on these non-annuitized, noun-type annuities, you have to call them and ask them the value to use. Just don't rely on your numbers, your, your account balance. But your math listener is correct. And pay attention, listeners, to what he's getting at. So he continues. This 30000 payout will drop my $250,000 account value after the first year. And he continues. Assume I have no growth. After about 8.3 years of taking 30000 a year out, the account value will be zero. Mm-hmm. And the 30000 of RMD payout would cover up to 600000 of IRA assets that can be kept in more volatile assets to grow. And that's where he made a mistake. And he writes, can you set me straight or perhaps my annuity sales advisor? Or will this entail a long, deep rabbit hole? It's not going to entail a long, deep rabbit hole. But he does write in one other paragraph that I skipped. He says, it is likely after eight or more years of payments, there will be a zero account balance in that annuity. And now the entire annuity payout can cover my RMDs of my other IRA assets almost exclusively. But your description at the end of the EDU show did not seem to jive 
with this understanding. It doesn't jive with that understanding. Why, Chris? Well, essentially, when the account balance gets to zero, they're no longer giving you your own money back, and that annuity is effectively considered annuitized. And uh, once again, he's almost got a, it's like he has the same thought process as the the previous uh, uh, emailer, where he thought that because there was now no longer an account balance, there was no RMD required from that account anymore. Uh, but that's not true, right? That's not true. So it's in the old uh, old days, this wasn't an issue because the payment was considered the RMD um, because it was annuitized at that point. Nowadays, though, there's this possibility that the annuity payment is bigger than the RMD implied by the lump sum equivalent value of the rest of those annuity payments. And now we're back to the same conversation that we had with the last listener. It has to be determined. It has to be obtained most likely from the insurance company. Uh, that value, that will be the RMD for, for that annuity. And if the payment is bigger than that, then you can use the excess to offset others, but the whole amount is not available. It's not like you have no RMD anymore simply because your cash balance has gone to zero. That annuity still has value in the eyes of the IRS for RMD purposes. Absolutely. And I believe he got this advice from his annuity salesman. And that's sad. Because insurance companies themselves yeah. do not push this. If they, if this was true, every insurance company in the world would be pushing this. Yeah. Reduce your RMDs, or you know, yeah. buy this annuity and and you never have another RMD. Give us a little bit of money, and in eight, nine, ten, twelve years, you'll have no RMDs again. It doesn't work that way. And what your agent doesn't understand, or you don't understand, when that reaches zero. That IRA, because think of it, listener, you're essentially saying I can use in this withdrawal annuity because I've, quote, unquote, never annuitized. I only had a withdrawal benefit. I had full access to my money whenever I wanted. And that's what these annuities, these style annuities folks try to do. They try to, for the people who don't like to annuitize, you get more money if you annuitize than these withdrawal annuities, dollar for dollar. You get more income. But there's a lot of people who still, even though you're going to get more money by annuitizing, they don't want to annuitize. For some reason, they don't want to give up access to their money. So they buy one of these annuities, even though the payout is lower. And this guy admitted, Chris, in eight plus years, he's going to have nothing in this annuity. But he's locked into lower payments forever. He might have ended up with more money if he bought a SPIA or invested those dollars off to the side and then buy a SPIA. It would take less dollars to buy a SPIA to get the same amount of money. If he would have grown, he's admitting this annuity isn't going to grow much for the 10 years he has it. It's possible he could have grew that money outside of the annuity and then taken a little bit of it or maybe a lot of it, but left some off to the side and bought a SPIA that would have paid him the same $30,000 and he has still some money left. Under this kind of annuity, folks, with this withdrawal benefit, He's kind of claiming, hey, I only have an IRA while there's an account balance. And because it's not annuitized, because I can get it whenever I want, I can. And you always could before Secure 2. Use the difference between the RMD for that IRA annuity. The difference can always be offset others. And we've been doing this for years in the office for clients of ours who have these types of annuities. 
But he's also saying, once it reaches zero, I have this magical RMD that just keeps coming. But I can use a big, fat zero in my calculation for the December 31st value. So I'm going to take the value of my half million dollar IRA and I'm going to add a big fat zero to it because there's no value in this IRA anymore. And then I'm going to determine my RMD. And even though I have a big fat zero because I don't have an IRA anymore, I do have this RMD that I can use that magically appeared out of nowhere, I guess. It doesn't work that way. Soon as your withdrawal benefit annuity reaches zero, it becomes an annuitized annuity in the eyes of the IRS. And prior to secure, people who had these kind of annuities, once it reached zero, there was no more offsetting. Now you can offset, but you still have to first determine the lump sum value of that now annuitized annuity. In other words, what's the value of that remaining lifetime stream of income? And until we get guidance, you're on your own on figuring that out. But if your agent told you when this reaches zero, you can use the entire amount to offset your RMDs, he or she was wrong, and you might want to set them straight. It does. It never worked that way pre-secure two, and it is certainly not going to work that way post-secure two. You'll be able to do some offsetting, but not the full amount. Yep. So anyways, annuities are incredibly complex, these types of annuities and these rules. So hopefully everyone gets this now. It's not rocket science, folks. You all are so smart when it comes to numbers and Excel and investing. But you're stumbling over this. It's it's we're done. I'm not. You can write me more questions on this. I ain't answering. I'm done with this topic for a while. We're not going to mention 204 again till June at the earliest. Okay, that sounds good. Well, that's probably going to fill the show. Um, these we got a. It was a little weedy. We'll call it. Went off in a variety of weedy directions here, which. Things are so convoluted in regards to these annuities, how they behave and how the taxation and the RMD situation and all that kind of stuff when you kind of, you know, fold it into an IRA that uh, pretty easy to wander around in the weeds for a while. So anything else you want to say real quick before we wrap up? I don't think so. I think uh, that's about it. I hope everybody has a good weekend. This hits on a Saturday, I believe. So if you're listening to it on the day it hits, hope you have a nice weekend. Uh, if you listen to any other day, I hope you're having a good day. Yeah. And we'll be back with you next week. And I promise, no more. You can write as many 204 questions as you want, but it ain't going to be answered till June. Or isn't going to be answered till June. Um, I'm. We can't keep going with this. I, I. I think we've covered it all. But look up that Rita article. Look up that Ed Slot article. Read them. Mm-hmm. It pretty much explains everything that we've been trying to teach us. It's not that difficult if you stop and think of it. Perfect. Yep. Thanks, everybody, for sending in the questions. If you want to send in your own questions, send them to Jim directly. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. That's jimhelps.com. Make sure in the subject line you indicate that it's a question for the show. And, again, no Section 204 questions for a while. (laughs) 
I guess you well, can, you can write them. They're just not going to be interested <laughs> until June. Yeah, that's a, you know, people look for ways to definitely get put to the top of the list. That would be a way to be put down the list of ways because we won't touch on this again for a while. Unless the IRS surprises us and they spring yes. on us some kind of, okay, finally, here's how you do it. And we will certainly jump on it immediately uh, if if that happens. But and I would, we, Chris I and I breath. will, Chris and I will love it mm-hmm. if they come out and take the approach that these two listeners are hoping. But we just don't see it, and neither does Rita, yeah. neither does Ed Slot, and, and neither does anybody that I know of is out there saying, oh, yeah. you can use the entire amount to offset RMDs from all your other IRAs. Doesn't work that way. Well, and I'm hoping Santa comes twice a year. I think that's about the same chance. But <laughs> we'll see. They can do anything. So thanks a lot, everybody. We'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jimhelps.com or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 